As a marketer, you are facing constant new challenges, and I am sure that sometimes it feels impossible to stay ahead of the curve. That's why you should listen to the podcast, Building Better CMOs. It's a podcast about the challenges marketers face and what you can do to make your marketing stronger and smarter. You'll get fresh insights from the marketing minds behind Heineken, Colgate, CVS, FanDuel, AT&T, and dozens more. So follow Building Better CMOs wherever you get your podcasts or go to bettercmos.com. Welcome to the five things this week in social. We're the Webby award-winning podcast that looks at the five hottest topics in social connections, data, content, and tech to give you something to tweet, thread, or TikTok about. If you're a marketer, an advertiser, or a creator, then you are listening to the right podcast. Today on the pod, we have two regulars at the five things bar and grill. First up, it's Daniel Avon. Daniel! Hello, Joey. I've missed you. It's been a few months. It has. It has. So question for you, which part of the meal is the most exciting to you? Is it the drink, the app, the entree, or the dessert? It's the dessert. It is always the dessert. Do you have any go-tos? I love a creme brulee. I love, like, anything that is, like, vaguely fatty, milk, and sweet-based is, like, my, you've got me, you've sold me. Chocolate will sometimes enter the equation, but... That's that's the that's the ticket. Good old creme brulee, if you will. And we have Kylie McDonald. Kylie! Hello, hello. Happy to be back. Happy to have you back. Same question. What part of the menu do you anticipate the most? Total opposite end. I'm an appetizer girly through and through. No question. Absolutely hate dessert. So yes, appetizers. Do you go for like a fried thing? Do you go for Brussels sprout, which direction do you go on an app menu? I absolutely switch it up depending on the place, but I would say pretzel nubs are pretty much bread and butter. Sorry for the pun, <laughs> but that, that's the move. Otherwise, love any sort of seafood appetizer for sure. Classic oysters, obviously a hit, but anything else too in, on that scale. So good. So good. I'm Joey Scarillo. And while I love a good entree, I will always at least look at the dessert menu. I mean, you got to look, right? All right. Now that we're very hungry, we can feast on these five things and we will not fill up on bread. Here they are. First up, Daniel talks about Twitter's official transition to X. And then with all the Twitter or X news, Kylie breaks down TikTok unveiling text-only posts. Then Daniel gets real with reels, revenue rivaling TikTok. Then Kylie chats threads. And with half of its users leaving, Meta tries to retain them. And finally, Daniel tells us about Reddit vying for verified accounts. Like I said, it's a lot of a lot. Let's get started. Daniel, tell us all about Twitter officially transitioning to X. In the wise words of season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race, Nina Bonina Brown, well, it's over. Twitter, as we've known it named, is no longer. Kind of. As of the 23rd of July, while Twitter.com and many other vestiges technically still exist, it is now named after Elon Musk's favorite letter, which verges on obsession, X. We know that there's 
a Tesla Model X. Musk himself is often called X for short. Even his son is named X-A-12. Don't ask me to spell that. And as has been the plan all along to make Twitter now X and everything app and platform, Musk created a holding company called X Holdings to purchase Twitter after repurchasing the X.com domain in 2017 after helping to found an online bank named X.com that later changed its name in order to merge with PayPal. Everyone tracking? The X runs deep. So the official change from Twitter to X seems to have been rather hasty and a potentially misguided decision given how colloquial the vocabulary is around Twitter, tweeting, and tweets. But not only did it take platform users off guard when their apps updated and the beloved bird was replaced with the letter X, it also took the city of San Francisco off guard when workers were removing Twitter signage from the headquarters exterior and they mounted a large X on the roof. All of this apparently without a permit and in violation of the city. Other more superficial changes have been made. The over 10 years old Twitter bird is not only scrubbed as the logo, but it no longer plays in team names. There used to be a community management group called Birdwatch that is now called Community Notes. So nothing of interest there. And the conference rooms at the headquarters, which have been renamed from kind of bird punny things with such original things as exposure, exult, and sexy. All of them have capital X in them and all of the other letters are lowercase like an Ariana Grande album. And the last room, so sexy, is spelled with the number three instead of an E. So spelled out lowercase s, the number three, capital letter X and Y very creative and unintentionally a bit campy. But there are actually more meaningful changes that are rolling out as a result of this transition to X that impact advertisers and brands in particular. So let's lay them out. This will be a little late for when this podcast is released, but until July 31st, X offered 50% off any new purchases of video ad placements due to the confluence of the name change as well as the Women's World Cup. They did a similar thing around the Super Bowl, some advertisers may remember, but they have also put down a mandate that will likely be relevant for when this podcast is released that August 7th is kind of the drop dead date where brands have to have spent $1,000 within the last 30 days or $6,000 in the last 180 days to maintain their gold checkmark verification status. So unless they're investing with Twitter, they've lost their legitimacy on the platform. So this is ushering in an era of greater pay to play and word off fraud for brands than was already happening on the platform and is an interesting messaging to brands. As we know, trust on the platform is a bit tenuous even with the placement of Linda Yaccarino, from whom we haven't heard a ton as she kind of steps into the role of CEO. So even though advertisers can't yet be confident in the brand safety standards that the platform has, they're now being pressured, some may call it held at ransom, to pay a minimum amount to ward off impersonation and losing their ability to knowingly be taken seriously on the platform in replies and so forth. Wow. I, I mean, that update, like everything you said was shocking in some regard. And so if you didn't know that already, know a lot of that information, a lot of that was wild, to say the least. OK, Kylie, wow. What has been the perception of all this change for consumers and 
for marketers, especially with what Daniel said about, you know, the plans and the dates and the packages and the gold check marks. What should marketers be thinking about and what are they thinking about with all this change? Well, first off, consumers are really considering, I guess we're going to call it X now, that whole platform itself, the zombie platform at this point in time, that's kind of become the known term among users, which is interesting. So as marketers, I think that's something to consider when either bringing back their organic content that they might have held off on because of all these transitions and issues with the platform moving forward. But also, as Daniel kind of alluded to, there's absolutely a sense of hostility with all of the different paid packages and boosted content on the platform. So overall, negative perceptions are still there. There's still a lot to worry about. However, the audiences are still there and making fun of it the entire way through. So that is that is the plus among all of the negativity, I would say. So marketers are still kind of having that balancing act. Yeah, I mean, we've been sort of scratching our head with all of these changes so far from Twitter slash X and Elon specifically, you know, around the blue check marks and the pay to play. So it does make me wonder, like, how is this going to be perceived by the users? I can't imagine that anybody is like fully on board, loves it. Hey, great job. Other than the people in Elon's ecosystem. Daniel, anything else you want to add on this one? Just a small thing, like a, a little petty design thing. So like, obviously, the app logo and icon has changed. It's like a black background and a white X. But on the platform itself, at least as it currently stands in my interface, nothing has changed other than the logo at the top. The hastiness is really showing through. And I wish that this had seemed to be more of a considered approach and not just following the passions and whims of the CEO. Because, you know, as, as Kylie was alluding to, like, this is a huge community of people. It's one of my favorite places on the internet because of just how funny it can be in like the echo chambers that exist. I know that there's a lot of toxicity on the platform, but it feels scary and a little bit unconsidered that such a cultural force could ultimately go away and go to where. I mean, we'll talk about other platforms today, but it is, you know, it was a good run for 10 years or so with Twitter being such a meaningful force in culture. If you haven't seen, there is this really great little meme floating around the internet right now from the World Wildlife Foundation, WWF. And it has all of Twitter's logos going back to 2006. And then 2023 has the X. And it has a really great message about extinction of animals. And so if you haven't seen that, I would just Google Twitter WWF because to me that shows a nice progression and also has, you know, a very serious message, but nice play on what's going on with Twitter. Now X, we'll keep an eye on all of this. And look, we're going to talk about it in our next story. Kylie, talk to us about TikTok moving into text-only posts. Sounds familiar. What's the really real? Yeah, so TikTok is now also entering the text-only content chat as it gives users an opportunity to not just have their creativity really shine through comment sections, captions, and that video text overlay across the platform, but now it's allowing users to create these separate, bespoke, text-only posts. So this means that users no longer need those background visuals, like the very deep, woodsy, aesthetically pleasing background to your super deep text. 
or your funny memes in general with a text overlay. And it's instead going to look super similar to when Instagram Stories first launched its text-only feature with 1,000 character limit and just all the same capabilities that you would have with your classic posts. So you can still add sounds, music, stickers, hashtags, and even keep tagging locations. Everything is the same on these posts. You can just limit it to be text only and really let your voice carry the posts, which is interesting for brands. But what I found kind of the most hard hitting of this new launch was that before it was launched, users were really bringing in text only content wherever they could from outside the platform. So like sharing screenshots of text only content from especially Twitter, as we all know, bringing in screenshots of Instagram carousels or Reddit articles or YouTube comment sections, anywhere where users could find a glimpse of really juicy text anywhere across the internet, they were bringing those screenshots in onto TikTok, especially even iMessages, like screenshots to get across a narrative of an entire TikTok story. A trend that falls into that previously existing like behavior on TikTok was I recently noticed that there were these TikTok carousels of super emotionally deep poems and therapy quotes that would go on for like 20 different TikTok photo slides in a row set to very deep music. And that trend hit almost every niche corner of TikTok to the point where users were talking about it on Twitter, talking about it on Instagram, and talking about it on other additional TikTok content. And then suddenly TikTok launches this new text-only feature, which is, I think, Maybe they're not connected. I'm going to connect them because I think it's fun. But it just really speaks to how TikTok is responding to the fact that text-only content was coming in outside the app. And now they're trying to really own that space for users to screenshot and then take to other platforms. All that being said, I would argue that for brands, this is really important because we're seeing brands start to repurpose their Twitter content and their Instagram content on other platforms. So now we're adding TikTok to that mix, especially with text-only content. Yeah, Daniel, we saw a version of this, I want to say a couple of years ago, when Twitter was sort of flexing on Instagram because people were screenshotting tweets and putting those on Instagram. This feels like the same way. So Instagram reacted to that. Now TikTok is reacting to a similar thing. Where do you think the possibilities can go specifically for brands with this new additional feature sort of becoming like Twitter was in TikTok? Do you think this makes TikTok sort of the one-stop shop on social? I don't think it's like an exclusive one-stop shop. TikTok doesn't have 100% penetration with any given audience. Obviously, younger audiences, it is a lot more representative. But I think this is a demonstration of what we've seen like Meta do over the years of the copycatting. In one of the articles that I was reading, it mentioned stories were actually possibly a copycat from Snapchat, which I didn't even think about. So I think that we're seeing a confluence of every single app is trying to have all of the formats possible. But for brands, what this means is that when you are working with your internal teams or when you're working with your agencies, the type of content that you develop for is similar in principle across platforms. Like you're likely going to have some form of a static post to live across Facebook, Instagram, da da da. Video obviously makes sense for TikTok, but now there may be an option that we have like text-led posts that could 
be a static post on Instagram or Facebook, could be something that we see on Twitter, could be something now on TikTok. There will be small nuances for each of the platforms like TikTok, you may add music or some sort of noise that goes with it. All to say that this is just, you know, social toolkits or social content development now just looks a little different in that we are not making one type of asset for each platform. We are now making all of the assets for all of the platforms and will adjust for when they are placed on a given platform. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, we we talk about platforms copycatting or taking features from other platforms all the time. And it does feel like this is a moment where all the platforms are sort of being shaken up a little bit and trying to figure out what their next steps are going to be and where the pieces are going to fall. All right, Daniel, let's get into Reels a little bit and talk about how their revenue is rivaling TikToks. So in just three short years, Reels has only existed for that amount of time. Meta's Reels across Facebook, but more likely present on Instagram, has reached an ad revenue of $10 billion globally, which rivals the $13 billion that is projected for TikTok for this year and is about where TikTok was last year. This is also over three times from the $3 billion that Reels appreciated in ad revenue last fall and the $1 billion that they had last summer. So this rapid growth hasn't happened overnight, hasn't come from nowhere. There's been some intentional changes that Meta has made over the years and particularly over the past six months or so. On a past episode, we talked about how Meta was working to incentivize creators to make more reels. I forget the name of the device, but it's essentially like badges that users can give to creators in order to give them some money. So just incentivizing from like a peer-to-peer perspective, but also they're kind of encouraging it on their end. But they're also at the same time kind of balancing the priority of video on Instagram with what was very profitable in the feed with the image-led one-by-one and so forth. But all to say, they've been making some changes from an incentive and interface perspective, but their AI investments are actually seeming to reap benefits very quickly. They've been leveraging this for the recommendation algorithm, as well as how they help advertisers set up and optimize campaigns. So whereas Reality Labs has yet to realize a profit in many, many years, AI is actually seeming to benefit the user experience, the advertiser experience, and leading to business results for Meta. There is still a bit of a time spent gap for the Meta apps. Facebook and Instagram are only around 30 minutes per day for a given user, but TikTok is closer to an hour for a user. So time spent, still TikTok is king, but the revenue levels are becoming more at parity. And this is only about a third of Meta's revenue. So what they get from other advertising in feed and so forth is making up that other 20 billion or so, but this 10 billion represents Reels only income. Reels also has achieved 20 billion daily video plays and all of this news being released has also driven Meta's stock price back to around where it was in summer fall of 2021 at its kind of height. It's still 20, 30, $40 shorter than that, but it's up a lot from, I think it was like 280 and now it's like 330. This has done a lot to really see the valuation of Meta grow. Just thinking about not only investors, but what what this means for, for brands. If you're an advertiser, you've probably noticed that you can just tick a box now to include reels in the rotation of where your content goes. The ease of that means it's even more important 
important for us to ensure that we are putting forth a range of content types, so video, static, and so forth, but also making sure that we are optimizing for and planning for that vertical video content that shows up in a Reels environment. Maybe there's Reels first content that we can consider starting to develop. And if you do the reverse math on if Meta has around $30 billion in revenue, 10 billion of that is coming from Reels, probably close to, and again, this is a projection math, a third of impressions are going through Reels, give or take. So it's really important for brands to be able to show up in that environment and show up well as it is becoming a more used and active space from a brand perspective. Yeah, so we should probably be telling our clients to have a strategy for both, not necessarily the exact same strategy across Reels and TikTok. Kylie, I'm interested in the time spent on app. I mean, what do you think leads to an average of 60 minutes on TikTok versus a 30 minutes on Reels? So happy you asked because I still have kind of a lingering question. And I think I've now said lingering twice on this podcast. So I hope someone listens to the cranberries after this. But I'm just wondering if because of the fact that TikTok content ends up recycled on reels a lot of the time without watermarks, obviously, but like we're seeing older trends come up on reels afterwards. So I'm wondering if the fact that people are spending more time on TikTok because it's very much net new content that's going on there that then they can later see on reels and then it's a quicker scroll. That's my first impression as an organic user. And I personally always gravitate towards organic versus all of the boostedness of all of these platforms. But second, I also know that reels is very affiliate program heavy in terms of paid content that we don't see as much on TikTok anymore like we used to when the platform was first popular. So I think that's taking up a lot of the revenue chunk potentially. And like that content is all boosted and all showing up on our feeds, which is also fairly skippable, <laughs> um, leading to a shorter scroll if you're not interested in products. So that could be a factor there. But I think those two, those two categories are my main just still questions about this whole revenue conversation. I would only add one other thing, and maybe this is just too logical, but could it be that you open Instagram and there are many options? You can go to Reels, you can go to Feed, you can go to Stories. So your time spent on Reels is going to be minimized. When you get on TikTok, the scrolling is pretty much the only thing to do. So to me, now that I think about it a little bit more, that stat actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, so that sounds like some good news over there. Some things are going well at Meta, but now let's talk about the things that are not going so well over at Meta. Last month, they unveiled Threads, which we dedicated an entire podcast to. And now Kylie's going to tell us that half the users are leaving. And what is Meta going to do? Kylie, tell us all about it. This makes me so sad because I too dedicated so much time to <laughs> Threads positioning when it first launched. And I myself was deep in the Threads uh, stream of consciousness game when it first launched <laughs> as an organic user. So, but getting into the facts of this situation, all the buzz around Meta Threads has died down a bit now after its initial launch. And so has its retention rate. And in my opinion, it's not really a surprise that their retention rate dropped, considering your audience was automatically transferred over, not really giving anyone an incentive to engage with them after that point. Like you already have your audience there ready to go. You can say whatever you want, but there's no like give and take with your audience on the platform. So it's not super surprising to me, but I digress. 
The app lost more than half of its users in the weeks following its launch, but Meta itself is chalking that up to typical user drop-off with emerging technologies and platforms, which, you know, I get that is absolutely true. And Zuckerberg also said that he expects the retention to grow as the company adds more and more features to the app, especially a desktop version and search functionality, which from my point of view, sounds super promising as a social media marketer. Those two features are automatically going to help us do our jobs on the app. So that's really great to hear. But overall, they're looking for these retention hooks they can add to the platform that make it a little bit more juicier for both current users and to attract even more users moving forward. But something that's a little scary, I would say, for marketers is that there's a quote, I forget who it's from exactly on the Meta team, but they want to make sure people who are on the Instagram app can see important threads. That's like one of their main emerging features they want to bring to threads, which could have so many implications for how marketers are posing their Instagram content in addition to how they shape up their threads presence. And so it's just going to mean a little bit more heavy lifting in the future potentially for marketers with their threads positioning and being able to balance both their Instagram and threads content and how it connects together. But all that aside, those are all retention hooks that are in question. There are some changes that have been already made to the app to make some users come back potentially. So they finally got a highly requested following feed, which is great. The option is now we can see a reverse chronological feed of posts from only accounts that you follow and had been, and this has been like one of the most requested features, I would argue. So this is great to hear and a great step from Meta. Meta CEO replied to a post requesting the feature and he literally said, ask and you shall receive, which is interesting energy going into threads. Like if you compare that to Twitter slash X, where the CEO is kind of just doing his own thing. Overall, those two things combined are a step in the right direction for the new platform. However, <laughs> I will end on a caveat. I would say this is a step in the right direction, but there's still that huge challenge of the fact that users dropped off of threads after the first week because it's like not buzzworthy and trending anymore. So now it's up to marketers to almost bring those users back to re-download the app. Like you can add as many features on the app as possible, but if the user itself no longer has the app downloaded and isn't on there, they're not going to see those features and see them in action. So it's going to be on brands to really incentivize their Instagram audiences and threads audiences to return to the app and like re-engage with the content that's on there. And that in itself is kind of a big ask because Right now, the conversation around threads and around social media in general is that brands kill fun things <laughs> on social. Our team here at Gray was just discussing a meme that got circulated yesterday on Twitter of that once a brand takes hold of a meme, it's no longer fun to play with. So I think that's what is probably the biggest struggle with threads right now is because brands have entered the chat, but they also have this responsibility to bring users back onto the app. So balancing those two things and combating those two things is an uphill battle for sure. In our Threads episode, I mentioned something about Instagram and Threads 
sharing content or seeing Instagram content from your post on threads. It sounds like the reverse is happening, but I have a feeling that with those two major platforms, there's no reason why Instagram can't be pulling people over to threads with pop-ups or messages. But I'm curious, you know, Daniel, we keep these couple new platforms in the mix here. So with this news, how do you think this affects the hives and the blue skies and all these emerging Twitter rivals that came before threads? How do you think this news affects them? So I think firstly, there's a reason we haven't spoken about those like Twitter potential other platforms in a while. I am curious to understand if like they have had similar drop-offs. Maybe they have just like a really core group of users. This is a mass play. This is not like a figure out how to use this new, maybe a little bit complicated platform. This is like, as Kylie was saying, like port users over from one to the next platform. I think this is possibly the first instance of Meta developing their own app um, where they are like really trying to create like an intrinsic link between another app. I think like Facebook and Instagram, they merged with Messenger, but this is like, okay, content is shared across these things. It's not just about cross-posting. It's about like showing up, I guess, as somewhat not native, but like this is clearly from threads coming onto your Instagram feed or in your Instagram platform. So it's kind of interesting the way that they're they're merging content and interfaces. But all of that to say, I think it doesn't mean anything good necessarily for those the blue skies and hives of it all. But I also am not sure like if it's this that is a negative impact or if it's just that Twitter has continued to exist and there are other tech solutions with other platforms that more users are active with. That's a great point, Daniel. Now I think we should wrap this one up. This is the dessert course here. Let's just chat about our old friend Reddit and how they are vying for verified accounts. Daniel, take it away. Certainly not least in the stories or things for the day, but it's official. Reddit is preparing for its IPO. I'm only kind of kidding because we've talked about this on the pod before about the changes that they're making on platform and it's very likely happening, but I'm actually talking about Reddit's verification efforts that they've started to kick off with fewer than 100 profiles. And this manifests in an official label, much like what we've seen in subreddit while upon first consideration, it may seem a little silly for an anonymous, historically almost anything goes platform to authenticate users. But as the platform works to prove its value, commercialize, monetize ahead of this IPO, it makes a lot of sense for brands in particular. So maybe not individual users, but for brands, absolutely. We've seen what happens when authentication is taken away on platforms like Twitter or now X, cue the brand impersonation examples from whenever they first rolled out Twitter Blue. But this move on Reddit's part seems to be equal parts enter the authentication race, but also making Reddit a more secure place for brands to engage with users, particularly in an organic capacity. For example, profiles with official labels can interact with consumers on questions regarding products and services and not just do so in like a promoted ask me anything type of environment. It's organic, it's community management that this seeks to benefit the most. A silver lining is that at least at the current moment, this 
truly seems to be about brand safety and not making more money for the platform. It's not a pay to play type of thing as we've seen on Twitter and heard today on Twitter. The beta is only available to profiles that have current relationships with the platform. So it begs the question, like you're probably investing with Reddit in order to have this authentication, but for all intents and purposes, you're not paying for the authentication itself. So if you are a brand that is active on Reddit's platform, it may be good to engage or start engagement with your reps and ask about getting authenticated for the future, because we know that Reddit is more and more becoming a place for people to do product research and ask other Redditors like, have you tried this product? How was it? And this is an opportunity for brands to kind of intercede or become a part of those conversations, hopefully and not a NIMBY type of way, but in a way that is additive to the conversation, allows them to defend criticism and also praise and add more context to good things that are said about the brand. Kylie, I mean, this sounds like a good move on the Reddit side. From your point of view as an agency social professional, what do you think? What's the what's the takeaway for you? I think this is a really great move, especially for brands. When brands are on apps like Reddit, Twitch, and some of these more emerging discourse-based apps, like it's hard for a brand to establish themselves as authentic. You almost have to convince your audiences that you are who you are when you're engaging with fans on the platforms. So this is absolutely going to help with that effort. I've experienced on multiple occasions where fans and users just don't believe you that you're the official XYZ account. So this is a really great step for that, especially for activations for brands. Yeah, I think it's a good step. That's great. All right. Well, I hope you're all feeling full from this one. It was a big one, but a lot to talk about. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, or just send us a thing you want us to discuss on the show. And you can do all of that by emailing us at podcastsatgray.com. Of course, I want to thank our panel today. Kylie and Daniel. And as always, thanks to Samantha Geller, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. On the season four finale of Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas, we chatted with Chef Akshay Bardwaj, the executive chef at Janoon, a fine dining Indian restaurant in the Flatiron District of New York City. You'll hear about Akshay's perseverance and defiance that helped him raise in the ranks of Janoon, which at one point was the only Michelin star restaurant in New York City serving Indian food. In this episode, you will hear about Akshay's path to cooking, how he approaches collaborations with other chefs, and where he finds inspiration for dishes when traveling. If you're like me and you loved the show The Bear, then you will love this episode of Gray Matter. And it was co-hosted by Gray podcast producer, Samantha Geller. Okay, well, you can find Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas wherever you find this podcast and that does it for us this week. So thank you, listener. Thanks for sticking with us through this entire meal. And please, as always, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York, produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin, with post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.